Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We love this uh, segment here, talking precious metals, gold, silver, maybe throwing in a little Bitcoin. We like to do that with Everett Millman, precious metals specialist at Gainesville's coin located in Gainesville, Florida. Everett, uh, we're out with a little bit of a story. I'm just looking at gold. It's off about 1.4% here to $1,739 an ounce, but it was off, I guess, overnight as much as 4%. Some folks calling it kind of like a mini flash crash. Any idea what happened there? Was that just technicals? I do think that technicals played a pretty large role here. Um, we have to keep in mind that during the summer, trading volumes in gold are rather thin. And just adding on to that is the fact that markets in Tokyo and Singapore were off for holiday. So the technical movements yep. would have a much larger effect in that low volume area. But I think the proximate cause was the strong employment data from Friday and sort of a carryover on that as Asian markets opened overnight. Um, that definitely knocks some of the luster off of gold. And we also have to keep in mind that sentiment in the gold market was already pretty low. Um, all of that seemed to kind of pile on in a quick technical sell-off. But I think that's short-term speculative activity, um, partly because of the swiftness we've seen the gold price recover this morning as well. Square with me to what feels like competing factors here. You mentioned the jobs report on Friday really strong. And yet overnight, it seems like Goldman, amongst others, started downgrading growth out of China on that Delta variant. How much of China is a headwind in terms of future lower growth, yet some strong growth here in the U.S.? Right. That is a very interesting dynamic where we see a divergence possibly um, between the direction the Chinese economy is going and where the U.S. is. You would think that uh, a weaker Chinese economy, if the Delta variant really isn't under control there, that that would be rather bad for gold, given how much gold demand comes from China. But I think the overall sentiment or the overall narrative of the economy improving, of things opening up, that just overall reduces safe haven demand for gold. So between those two competing trends or forces, um, right now the focus does seem to be on the U.S. recovery. But in the, on the horizon, I think that the China issue is, is certainly something there that gold traders should be watching. All right, let's uh, talk a little bit about some of the, you know, copper was one metal that was really rallying earlier in the year. And I guess, you know, a little bit of a, a you know, a demand uh, driven there as it relates to, you know, maybe a reopening of the global economy. Um, mm -hmm. What's your thought on copper? Well, copper is somewhat interesting, interestingly in a crossroads right now, similar to what we're saying with the divergence between the U.S. and China. Um, we did see Beijing sell some of its strategic copper stockpiles in order to try and quell prices and bring down that commodities inflation. But then on the supply side, we have potential strike in Chile and that um, the Chilean strike possibility, even though it hasn't actually happened, um, that would have a major effect on how much copper is available in the market, Chile being the world's largest producer of copper and exporter. So I think that those two competing forces kind of have copper stuck in neutral right now. Um, but if I think inflation also plays a role there. If we get sustained inflation, um, we talk so much about that gold being an inflation hedge, and it is. Mm. 
but copper and some of the uh, industrial commodities even more so factor into that equation. What is not stuck in neutral is Bitcoin. And Everett, it's funny, I you know, started out my career covering muni bonds. My co-anchor in the afternoon, Caroline, loves crypto. And we were finally able to get our worlds to collide with the infrastructure bill, uh, with crypto sort of being the big holdup. That being said, I'm taking a look at Bitcoin, which is up to 45, 46 thousand. What are the sort of indications that you look at to get us back up to 50K? Well, I think that it hinges largely on, as you pointed out with the infrastructure bill, what is the regulatory framework or environment for Bitcoin and cryptos going to look like going forward? We have seen some mixed messages about whether Congress wants to sort of enshrine proof of work cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin as um, being something that is regulated like other securities. Um, I think that would be rather positive if that was the final outcome. But of course, there are those competing voices in, in the political realm who think rather differently that cryptos represent this major threat to the U.S. dollar um, and to sort of finance as a whole uh, the legacy systems of the financial uh, framework. So I think that uh, with that being said, um, we'd like to see Congress make some sort of move on regulation so that this isn't just a question up in the air, that the crypto market is constantly in fear of a major pullback like we saw about a month or two ago. Um, to get us back up to those highs, I really would like to see some clarity on, on the regulatory outlook for Bitcoin. All right, Everett, thank you so much. We appreciate it. As always, Everett Millman, precious metal specialist at Gainesville Coins. Well, the United Nations, uh, they backed a group of the world's top scientists to study climate change. And a new report came out from these folks. And it warns that the planet will warm by 1.5 degrees Celsius in the next two decades without dramatic, dra drastic moves to eliminate greenhouse gas pollution. The question for a lot of investors is, oh boy, that sounds big. What do we do? How do we position ourselves? Ibrahim Al-Husseini joins us. He's a founder and managing partner at Full Cycle Private Equity Firm. Um, and they finance companies that create positive social and environmental change. So when you see a report like this, Ibrahim, what does it make you think? Well, it makes me uh, reemphasizes the point that we've been saying since 2013, which is, you know, we need to increase the pace of rolling out low carbon infrastructure as fast as possible. And I'm glad that the scientific community is generating these types of reports so the investment community can understand how critical it is to the stability of our markets, our economy, our health, our civilization, that we accelerate the pace of which we are transitioning to a low-carbon future. One of the best things about what you do is you are scouring the landscape, right, to find investments that are focused really on sustainable infrastructure. What changes in the last few years have you seen about the types of new inventions, the types of new products, and really the amount? I feel like really just in the last few years, we've seen a huge surge in, in this topic. So one of the things that Full Cycle focuses on is I've been I've been in this space before even a lot of the uh, vernacular and nomenclature has been invented, mostly because I used to be a scuba diver in the 90s and saw the degradation and the quality of the marine life firsthand. And a lot of what was obvious, what is now obvious above sea level was uh, obvious underneath the surface of the water early on. I mean, all the, the droughts and the floods and the hydrocycle trans. Uh, 
transforming in front of our eyes and, you know, uh, diminished crop yields, et cetera, uh, what it looked like underneath the surface of the water was, you know, uh, was bleaching corals and uh, floating plastic where life was used to be abundant. So we've been fine-tuning this nuanced approach to how we can transition to a low-carbon economy in a risk-adjusted return profile that any uh, investor would be proud to be to participate in. And what we found is, and what is one of the things that the kind of climate industry doesn't speak too much about, is that 1% of atmospheric greenhouse gases are actually responsible for over 40% of the warming, because not all greenhouse gas molecules are equal. For example, a methane molecule is 86 times more heat trapping than a CO2 molecule. So what we do is we focus on what, what these molecules are called. They're, it's, a, it's a poorly chosen uh, misnomer called short-lived climate pollutants and things like methane and nitrous oxide and refrigerants. And when you focus on that, you produce something called a higher CROI, a carbon return on investment. And we even invented our own metric called CROI 20, which front loads the warming abatement in the first 20 years to make sure that we are doing our part to minimize the warming cycle. Because as you can imagine, warming recedes more glacier, uh, melts more ice, which which creates less reflect activity to the solar radiation back into space, which creates more warming. So the more we can front load our impact, the higher, the more time we'll buy ourselves long term. So, Ibrahim, the, the Biden infrastructure plan includes more than $150 billion to boost clean energy and promote climate resilience. Is it enough? Is it a start? How do you view it? So it's definitely not enough. We literally need trillions of dollars, about $2.3 trillion a year, just in energy infrastructure investment alone, uh, let alone all the other areas that contribute to warming, because it's not just an energy play. Our food systems, our water systems, our agricultural systems, they all contribute, and they contribute substantially. So we need uh, a much higher number than what this plan is proposing but it is a start. We're now talking about this, and I'm glad that the market understands that this is a massive job creation opportunity. It's a massive uh, investment opportunity. It's probably the largest investment opportunity in human history because everything has to be upgraded. All the 19th century and 25th century infrastructure technology that we rely on all has to be upgraded to their 21st century counterparts. So and this is, these are all... Um, technologies that will make us a better, faster, more cleaner society. So this is a natural transition, and I'm glad that we now have to do it, and we can't. We no longer just can, you know, per, uh, kick the can further down the road any longer. We have to do it now, and I'm proud of this administration for leading the charge in putting it out there and investing these, you know, close to a trillion dollars on it. We only have about. 30 seconds. Within this bill, there's been a lot of talk about those EV charging stations. A lot of people have said that batteries aren't always clean in and of themselves. Are the EV charging stations and the push to EV, is that a good enough goal to have as we think about getting away from traditional uh, gasoline? So, I mean, the, the, the energy infrastructure in the U.S. is all being upgraded, you know, maybe, albeit slowly to a, a clean uh, 
clean sources and a new upgraded grid, which is there's a lot of money for upgrading the grid, which right. means that we can now transport energy from places that are efficient when it comes to wind and solar to areas that are less efficient. So, yep. All right, Abraham, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Abraham Al-Husseini, founder and managing partner of a Full Cycle, joining us uh, from Los Angeles. Let's get the latest on the investigation into the harassment claims against uh, New York Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo. I guess one of the most recent pieces of news on that is Cuomo's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, resigns amid, ha- amid harassment claims against the governor, raising to some the question of, you know, who shares in some of this liability here. Let's get to that question with Rania Sedham, uh, managing partner of Sedham Law Group based in New York City. So, Rania, thanks so much for joining us here. thought it very interesting that, again, this uh, top aide, Melissa DeRosa, uh, resigned. What do you think's behind that? I and mean, what are some of the I guess, legal risk for those in the Cuomo inner circle. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on the show, Uh, first and foremost. Well, you know, your guess is as good as mine on why she resigned, but most individuals do not resign from a a job that pays them upwards of $207,000 a year for no reason. But from a legal perspective, there's something called aider and a better liability. And uh, very briefly, it means that even if you are not the person who is accused of sexual harassment, in this case, you're not uh, Governor Cuomo, you may still be found to help have helped him uh, with his pursuits, and therefore you may be found liable. So in this case, perhaps Mr. Rosa was an aider and a better. Your guess is as good as mine. Should I mean, have we seen examples of this aid and aider and a better in business cases or just you know, cor- corporate cases that, that you've seen? I mean, there there is certainly uh, a lot of discussion about aider and a better liability, but in my opinion, there is not enough of a discussion. We always focus on the individual who was sexually harassing somebody. Of course, that's important. But when you have someone here uh, with, who is accused by several women, not just one woman, it's likely that there's a whole litany of people who's, who are helping the protagonist. And therefore, I think we should have more cases that discuss this aider and a better liability. But yes, you do see it uh, oftentimes uh, with banks uh, and law firms, unfortunately. There have been several in the news. Uh, I'm sure you've uh, touched on the subject. And in larger corporations. I mean, should there be, it seems like it's extraordinarily difficult for the victims to, to move forward with their cases here. Is there some belief within the legal community that maybe there should be some standard legal protocol to maybe manage this whole process better, to give uh, the victims maybe more rights or make it a better process to manage? I think that... Uh while there is a lot of training, you know, it, it was made mandatory, you know, relatively recently having sexual harassment training on an annual basis in New York State and New York City uh, prior to New York State. I don't think that the training goes far enough in helping people with their investigations. I don't think that there is enough information and communication around uh, the fear that some people may have, and that's why they're not coming forward, whether it is because they were harassed or because they're helping. Uh, this person sexually harassed somebody. It can be something as small as you convince someone to go into a room alone with another person, or it can be uh, more subtle. Uh, But the point is, there's generally, in my experience, multiple people involved 
when there are multiple victims involved. Does this go, I mean, you think about this, and there's been some very high-profile uh, cases coming out of the media industry, for example, with um, Harvey Weinstein and maybe, you know, uh, some other executives in the media industry. Yeah, it seems like unless it gets to the board level, it doesn't really get the attention it needs. I mean, is it something that board members need to be held accountable for, for the, the workplace uh, of, of the company? Uh, that's a tough question. It, uh, to me, it would really depend upon how often this board is meeting and what information gets to the board. I don't think you should hold someone accountable simply because they're part of an organization. In fact, uh, recently, I think there was a good decision in 2021 that uh, said that your boss, Mr. Bloomberg himself, cannot be named as a defendant simply because somebody in the organization may have harass somebody. So I don't think it's fair to attack the owner. Uh, I don't think it's fair to attack the board members if they had nothing to do with it. However, in my mind, it doesn't matter to me whether the aider and abetter was a high-profile person or, uh, you know, a lowly, low-ranked individual or someone who's not even part of the company. Anyone who is involved in this kind of behavior needs to be punished. And no one is really discussing that. Instead, uh, People are allowed to resign or they just disappear. But we need to go after those individuals also because I don't want there to be a culture of approved, condoned, or any other word you want to use, sexual harassment in the workplace. What, what are you looking forward to as next steps <clears throat> with Governor Cuomo in, in this whole situation? What, what should we uh, be looking forward to as next steps? I mean, I would really... Uh, like to hear both sides of the story. I'm an attorney, so I do believe in uh, you know the system of justice that we have here. I, I think that we need to hear both sides, but at the same time, I think that the inquiry that the attorney general is making into non-Governor uh, Cuomo employees is a good one, and I, I really want to monitor that and see where that goes. How, how I mean, is this something that would go potentially outside of his inner group, or do you think this is, they're going to try to keep it pretty close? I think uh, they're going to try to keep it relatively close. I, I mean, just putting the law aside for a second and using logic, it's easier to get somebody who's a confidant of yours, who has personal loyalty to you, to help you uh, with whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. Exactly. So, all right. Very good. Rania Sethome, thank you so much for joining us. Rania Sethome, managing partner for Sethome Law Group based in New York City, giving us uh, some added context to uh, these investigations of Governor Cuomo. Looking at the markets here, uh, again, kind of a quiet day in the markets. Uh, S&P, essentially no change. The Dow off about uh, two-tenths of one percent, and NASDAQ up just slightly up about one-tenth of one percent. The Russell, the small cap stocks, they're off about two-tenths of one percent. Looking at the uh, Treasury market here, the 10-year Treasury trading off three off about three basis points, uh, putting the yield up, I'm sorry, to 1.3%. The 10-year, I'm sorry, the 30-year still below 2% on the 10-year at 1.95. So just extraordinary. We've had some rates moving back up over the last uh, several days, but still uh, historically low, of course, as we have a Federal Reserve talking about continued low rates uh, and really talking about tapering perhaps 
late this year, but more likely into next year. So that's uh, kind of what we're getting out of the Federal Reserve. And, of course, Jackson Hole coming up later this month. Uh, that'll be another data point or another opportunity for the Fed to uh, lay out some scenarios here. Looking at the uh, uh, VIX for Tom Keene, it remains low at 17. Looking at the dollar uh, index, DXY, 92.9. The DXY slightly higher here uh, this morning. Balance of Power with David Weston. That is coming up in just moments. He will drive the conversation forward and have the latest on the infrastructure package. I'm Paul Sweeney. This is Bloomberg. Like most people, my TV viewing is going more and more from the lineal, traditional uh, television and broadcast cable networks, more towards streaming. More and more content is going towards streaming. And a lot of that streaming uh, is advertising supported. And when you talk about advertising, you have to count that audience. And that historically has meant AC Nielsen and company getting those Nielsen ratings. But not everybody thinks Nielsen's doing a good job with the streaming uh, world. Disney. I'm sorry, Discovery CEO David Zaslav, he hopes the industry leaves Nielsen in the dust after ratings blunders. Let's get to the bottom of that with Mark Douglas, founder and CEO of MNTN, pronounced Mountain, based in Los Angeles. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, Nielsen, it seems like, you know, they've been the gold standard for advertising, television advertising. Um, that's the, the the metric that billions of dollars of ad spending is bought and sold every year. But they've had a hard time keeping up with the new technologies. Where are they vis-a-vis -vis streaming? Well, the way to think about Nielsen is, in my view, they're an analog company, and we now live in a digital world. So the way they measure audiences is they literally ask people what they watch using panels. And, you know, when you had cable television, that was the only way to do it. But now we live in a world where everything is delivered direct to your home and it can be precisely measured. And Nielsen is not yet doing that. And that's the problem. And, you know, some big money is being spent. And we talk about advertising uh, streaming on demand, ASVOD. Think that's Peacock, right? Is, that, is Peacock an example of that? Absolutely. So Peacock, there's what's called subscription um, streaming, which everyone knows is Netflix and Disney Plus. But the bigger, the market that's growing very quickly is ad supported. So that's Peacock and Bravo and Discovery Channel. Any of the, the, the things you watch, like on your, your Roku or your Apple TV, any of those apps, that's, that's generally um, most of that is now ad supported. So how do those companies, like, again, the, the Discovery CEO publicly saying, you know, we're leaving, you know, a lot of money on the table because Nielsen's not capturing that audience. Do we know how much money, in fact, is being left on, on the table? Well, I think the way to, to think about that is, is last year or even this year, there was a lot of talk about shows that were underperforming big ones like the Oscars and things like that. And some of that probably definitely had to do with the audience losing interest or being preoccupied with the pandemic. But increasingly, people think it was just literally Nielsen couldn't measure it or didn't measure it. And so that costs those companies a lot of money because the ad rates are based on the size of the audience. And so if Nielsen doesn't measure the entire audience, for someone like the CEO of Discovery, that's a really, really big issue. They left a lot of money on the table. Also, for advertisers, they want to know how many people they're reaching. And so if Nielsen can't tell them um, accurately, then that's a problem. But luckily, we're moving into this world where it is going to be accurately measured, just not by Nielsen. What is Nielsen's response to these criticism? Because historically, it seems to me they've always been three or four years behind where the industry was in terms of how 
people are consuming uh, video? Uh, I'm not sure Nielsen has a response. Look at other forms of advertising. If you look at Google with paid search or you look at Facebook with paid social, um, they don't need a Nielsen. Yep. Google can tell you exactly how many ads they served and how many people. And the and so can Facebook and so can every other company in the digital ad industry. Like Mountain, we do we do um, ads on on streaming television. And so Nielsen, there, there's not necessarily room for them, and and it's not needed. And there's no other form of what you can think of as digital advertising, which is what streaming television is, where Nielsen plays a role. And I don't think they're going to play a role in streaming at all going forward. Certainly not the role they played on cable on cable television in the past. I think their best days are behind them. Well, who is the replacement for Nielsen, or, or what is the technology, or what is the solution here to capture this this viewing? Right. So when you're at home and you're watching, you pick the show you want to watch. Even though it feels like a television experience, it's more like going on the Internet and just picking a video to watch. It's more like YouTube, you know, just selecting the video. And so that's called that that direct streaming is done through technology called an ad server. And and any time that ad server streams, any time that show, just like if YouTube, you play a video off YouTube, YouTube is able to count it. Um, anyone streaming those shows like Discovery, like you know, and a Peacock, they are counting the number of views themselves, and they can report that data directly to the advertiser and to Variety and you know all the sources that are interested in them. So there's no, there's not a need for this independent company to estimate the number of people watch. You know, all of these TV networks now can just tell you exactly because they're streaming it. Well, the point is, the whole point of Nielsen was it was an independent measurement. Will advertising dollars be transacted on something that, you know, Discovery tells me or CBS tells me? Well, it is now. There, there are ways of auditing that. You can, as an advertiser, demand audit rights. That's pretty common. But, you know, that's what everyone does now. You know, Google sells more than $100 billion a year of advertising, Facebook over $80 billion a year. And for the most part, those same advertisers trust the data that Google shares with them and trust the data that Facebook gives them. But the, the advertisers can get smart and they can ask for ways to audit the data. And, and I don't think, you know, Google or any TV network wants to get caught up in a scandal of, you know, overestimating their numbers. All right. Fascinating story, Mark, a developing story for the world of digital advertising and some of these uh, streaming uh, networks to get their fair share. Mark Douglas, founder and CEO of Mountain, based in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.